Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. Hi, I'm Marie Cha. On today's Making Contact... We saw a movement where the people of Vietnam raised their fists alongside soldiers, alongside Black Panthers, with San Francisco State students, Asian young people in Chinatown, peace activists, with Chicano Latino freedom fighters. Folks knew that the U.S. empire had many faces. Whether it was bombs destroying villages in Vietnam or deep oppression in the streets of Oakland. And their unity, that solidarity, was not just in a common struggle, but it was in a united front of resistance and resilience. The people were raising their fists and they were rising up. 50 years ago, the American war in Vietnam was at its height. There, people had already fought against Japanese and French colonial rule, and now the U.S. attempt at domination was once again turning family members, friends, and neighbors against each other. For the U.S. government, this was just another Cold War battleground, and the deaths of 2 to 4 million Vietnamese people was seen as collateral damage in establishing U.S. rule over the region. But people of color around the world saw the resistance in Vietnam as a source of inspiration. Today, we'll hear excerpts from an intergenerational teaching held by the Vietnam Victory Coalition in 2015 called The Spirit of Vietnam is Stronger Than U.S. Bombs. Thuy Jang Nguyen was a core member of Viet Unity and the Vietnam Victory Coalition. She kicked off the event. My name is Thuy Jang. I'm Thuy Jang Nguyen. I'm a daughter of four... I was born in Vietnam for 10 years after post-war Vietnam. With that say, I also left the country with my mother in refugee camp for three years, came to reunite it with my dad and my older brothers here in the United States in Oakland, where he found home. And then I lived here in Oakland for 23 years. I'm the only one that from my school, that who I know as a refugee, as a person from Oakland, as a person from Castlemont, I'm the only class that went to Berkeley, so it was incredibly lonely. When I finished Berkeley, I started with a group called Vit Unity. They wanted to kind of interested in exploring the alternative to what is what we call now is the dominant narratives. And a lot of you all know is that the Vietnamese community in diaspora mostly support the U.S., so they're pro-U.S. And so for a lot of us, taking that risk and exploring what it means to be a Vietnamese and a progressive really compartmentally. So for us, the work is about exploring, about healing, about understanding our own history, our own family history, and at the same time, taking that risk. Whereas my parents who came here, I think they already exhausted by the impact of war. You know, both of my family, my dad is on the south side, my mom, most of the family, even including her younger brother, 16-year-old, were kind of lost his life during the revolution too. So there's a lot of complexity in the Vietnamese community that we all hold and we need a space to talk about it. So that's the work that Viet Unity were able to create. I think it's important to acknowledge that Vietnam only have 40 years of independence. Growing up, I never told that stories. The story of self-determination. So to really embody that story, 
is kind of shake my core. And that's why we live in the United States, we don't talk about the imperialists. Such a contradiction. And when we talk about it, we're kind of scared about it. And I feel like there's a nexus between the state violence of the police against community color here and the state violence against the countries where I come from. The victory of Vietnam is a victory not just for the Vietnamese liberations, but also for all the oppressed. In the 60s and 70s, people were also making these connections between the violence of the police against communities of color in the U.S. and U.S. military violence in the countries where people are from. At the time, No Tan Yan was part of building the Union of Vietnamese. They formed critical alliances between Black, Brown, and Asian communities as they supported the self-determination of people in Vietnam and struggled against the racism of the white anti-war movement in the U.S. My name is Ngo Thanh Yan. I was born in Saigon in 1948 during the French occupation of Vietnam. My father's family was killed in 1928, and he ran away from home and joined the French army. And my brother joined the Republic of Vietnam Army, and he was killed in 1974 by a napalm that dropped on the battlefield in order to declare victory. And so um, I was raised in Saigon. I was the best student in school, and I was uh, selected to come to the United States by the U.S. Agency of International Development, uh, USAID, leadership scholarship in 1968, and the first school I came to was uh, San Jose State. At that time, Angela Davis was on trial in San Jose, <laughs> and it was a lot of activity in San Jose, a lot of students asking me about the Vietnam War. And when I came, Martin Luther King was assassinated, and my teacher gave me a speech of Luther King to read. The speech was beyond Vietnam one year before. I read it, and I turned anti-war immediately because it was related to the experience of the Vietnamese and the black being discriminated and racially biased by the United States government. Of course, you know, it's like that. From that, I learned that Ho Chi Minh, when he first came to the United States, when he was in his 20s, he wrote about lynching. And he related to the struggle of the black with the Vietnamese struggle for independence. So. For four years right there, and one day I was shown a Namik sky slideshow on the weapon that was used in Vietnam. It was Agent Orange that was mentioned in there, and also the uh, napalm bomb, which they put in phosphorus so that even though you got caught by it, you can't jump into the water. When you jump into the water, it burns more. And personnel bombs and all that sort of thing. And I was so devastated that we started to form a group of USAID scholarship students, about 30 of us built the Union of Vietnamese out of that. The first thing we need was poster, and we were in Berkeley at that time. The Black Panther Party comrade come by, and they, do you need poster? And, you know, the next day they came out with two uh, poster and leaflet. It was moving, but in any case, we have tried very much in the anti-war movement against racism even in the movement. At that time, 
when we want the Union of Vietnamese member come to tell them that you know they support seven peace point of the National Liberation Front, they said no, that's too radical. At that time, we were usually escorted by Asian left caucus and the black who came to the coalition all the time like that as a group. Otherwise, they wouldn't listen to me. They don't care what the Vietnamese say. They have a better idea how peace in Vietnam <laughs> come about. <laughs> but in any case, the Vietnamese did teach the U.S. a lesson <laughs> in Vietnam. In their seven peace points, the Vietnamese Liberation Front called for an immediate ceasefire between military forces and the withdrawal of all American troops. They made it clear that the Vietnamese people would settle issues of peace and reunification themselves without the interference of outside powers, that they would seek reparations from the U.S. for the destruction they caused, and that they wanted to have relationships with all countries, including the U.S. During the war in Vietnam, much of the white anti-war left was motivated by the images of brutality coming out of Vietnam, their opposition to the draft, and the deaths of U.S. soldiers. But for many people of color in the U.S., their opposition to the war was tied to their own struggles against police and economic violence in their communities here, and the struggles of people in the countries they came from against the stranglehold of the U.S., Israel, and other colonial powers. They were inspired by the resistance of the Vietnamese Liberation Front and actively worked to build relationships and learn from one another. Rabab Abdelhadi has been part of the Movement for National Liberation in Palestine for decades. She currently works as a professor of ethnic studies at San Francisco State University. Vietnam has always stood by the Palestinians. In 1968, during the height of the Vietnamese War of Liberation, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam under President Ho Chi Minh established diplomatic relations with the PLO. During the Black September War of Jordan against the Palestinians, they sent food and medical supplies to the Palestinian resistance. In 1976, within less than a year of the victory of Vietnam against U.S. imperialism, Vietnam opened a mission for the Palestine Liberation Organization in Hanoi. And in 1982, during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, the mission was upgraded to an embassy. The Black Panther Party also found ways to build friendship with the Vietnamese Liberation Front. Emery Douglas was their minister of culture at the time. There were many ways that the Black Panther Party was inspired. We had several delegations that went to North Vietnam during the 60s. We had comrades in Algeria who used to go meet with the Vietnamese. And so we always had these close links and connections and one of our front pages of our newspapers, we were offering troops to go and fight in Vietnam. There had been some discussions, and there were Panthers who were prepared to go if that reality would have happened. Of course, they sent us a, a beautiful letter back saying thank you and no thank you, but if we ever need your services, we will give you a call. <laughs> in addition to building relationships between movements for self-determination in different parts of the world, Groups were also learning from one another. Perhaps the most important lesson, in addition to the role of the Vietnamese Communist Party in leading the National Liberation Front, is the clarification of Vietnam, who are the enemies and who are our friends. In the literature of the Palestinian movement reflects such strategy, especially the Palestinian radical forces. 
There is no ambiguity on U.S. imperialism, on Zionism, and Arab reactionary forces. The collaboration between our enemies is clear too. In March 1966, Moshe Dayan, the Israeli quote-unquote defense minister or minister of war, toured Vietnam as a guest of the U.S. military. After witnessing the American attack on the Cambodian border, he noted the similar strategies, and I quote, the United States and Israel employ almost identical language in speaking of re reprisal actions. The formula employed is that the cost involved in aiding the enemy must be made so high that those involved would no longer be able to pay it. This is what the Israeli Minister of War said about US and, and Israel. This also explains why and what Israel has learned from the US too. Israel used napalm on the Palestinian civilian population in Jerusalem and Bethlehem during the 1967 war, right after the visit of Moshe Dayan to Vietnam in 1966. Napalm was also used not only by the Israelis, but by King Hussein's military in September 1970 when they bombed Palestinian refugee camps in Jordan, because it was very important for the United States to keep its lackeys in power, such as the Jordanian regime. The second lesson that we learned, that our enemies are not only external, but they might be as dangerous as the external forces. And this is where Jordanian regime comes in. In the case of Palestine, it wasn't only in Jordan, but during the Lebanese civil war and during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, Israel created the South Lebanese army, just like the United States placed the regime in Saigon in place. They acted as the front line of attack against Palestinian and Lebanese anti-colonial forces. But Vietnamese example is not only about our enemies, it's also about the heroic resistance. The tunnels of Kuchi have been reproduced in 2006 in the Lebanese resistance against the Israeli invasion of South Lebanon. They were also reproduced in Gaza. The tunnels in Gaza are the lifelines of the Palestinians who are under blockade by Israel. Until this very day, Vietnam remains imprinted in our minds and hearts as the example that a small country can defeat the mightiest force on earth. The tunnels of Kuchi were an extensive network of underground tunnels that connected Ho Chi Minh City to many other parts of the country. They allowed fighters with the Vietnamese Liberation Front to move covertly and gave people a place to hide during U.S. carpet bombing campaigns. The Panthers were also inspired by the strategy of the Vietnamese Liberation Front. Our paper... We wanted it to be like, and Huey Newton used to talk about being a very uh, portable operation, about like a guerrilla operation, where you could pick it up and take it on the move any, any, at any moment in the early days of the organization. And that was inspired by the Vietnamese. Also, I'd like to close with Dr. King, MLK, Dr. King, when he uh, talked about, uh, if you go to YouTube, and you look at the, the video why I'm opposed to the war in Vietnam, you can understand why he was assassinated. Uh, he said he began to talk about it in the context of linking the racism in this country, the uh, extreme materialism in this country, and the militarism to the linking that to what was going on in Vietnam. The generation of activists that came up in the 90s and 2000s built on these connections and took those questions a step further. 
Prishni Murillo is part of that generation and works with the Chicana Moratorium Coalition. First of all, I want to say that I am extremely honored to be in the presence of all this history and all these elders. I know there's a lot of resistance to being called elders in the community. Um, you know, our, our legacy keepers, our history holders. Um, <laughs> but I am also very humbled and honored to be here and add a perspective, a Chicano perspective that I kind of grew up in as I became an organizer here in the Bay. And so I'm going to kind of share my story as a gateway to talk about the Chicano Moratorium um, in the mid-90s, or actually early 90s, when the anti-immigrant kind of fervor hit the West Coast. And at that time, I was a teenager, undocumented, really busy and concerned and upset about the street violence that was happening amongst my peers. And in the midst of trying to grapple with the reality of the street violence, but as well as the uncertainty of my life and my family's life in the midst of this political climate, I sought to organize and it was the one tangible way I knew how to fight back. And so I was lucky that at that point, the older folks that were mobilized from the 60s, 70s, and 80s were still around and were really supportive anchors in guiding our anger at that point and our wanting to do something. And that's how I stepped into an organization. It was called Fund Our Youth or Face the Consequences. And it originally came up as a fight to really address the expulsion rate, the suspension rate, and to get kind of like the homeboys in the mission and the homegirls in the mission really to fight for something realistic and tangible in our lives. But it also coincided with the anti-immigrant kind of statewide political climate and political discussion. And so for us to know that we were fighting for immediate needs of our peers, as we were fighting for the dignity of our families made sense. And we kind of rode that train. But via the, through our organizing, we were constantly exposed to like, you know, ideas that preceded us. And so I'll talk a little bit about the moratorium story that that I had never heard and the organizing of the Chicanos in the 60s that really led to the foundation and actually really strengthened my self-identity and the pathway to the organizing that I continue to do today. I think we all know the culture that existed in the streets and the electricity regarding like liberation, right? And the big question, I think Vietnam and the battle in Vietnam really brought into question, one, what is our role as subjects of this imperial machine, right? And also, what is our role in relationship to this land base and the homes that we occupy here at home and in relationship to the other communities in which we share this space? And in 1968, Corky Gonzalez, who is not very well known, but for us in the Chicano community, we consider him kind of like the Malcolm X, who really spoke fire to the system. So Corky Gonzalez, look, look him up. Que viva. que viva, presente. And um, he called for the first National Chicano Youth Conference in Denver, Colorado in 1968 as an opportunity to really grapple with this discussion about like who are we, what's our goal, what's our agenda, how are we resisting the war, and what are we going to do at home. And one of the main charges that came out of that was for an I will say close to a thousand people showed up to this one national conference. Over five different states were represented, mostly young people, and the charge was to go back home and organize. 
organize local education sessions, organize local actions against the war to join in body and in actions all the anti-war mobilizations in our homes, in our barrios. And as a result of all that action from in 1968, 1969, in 1970, the first ever mass mobilization of brown people in the Southwest took place in East LA. 30,000 people took the streets in East LA in 1970 with a united call to end the war in Vietnam, but there also to be a Chicano moratorium to participate in the war machine and bring justice to our communities. Yes. It was a major endeavor for that time, no social media, and all that other good stuff, not a lot of resources, but people found their way. We've heard stories of hitchhiking, you know, all kinds of stories leading to that day. But that day also completed with, and I'm not gonna get to share too much, but with people um, dying as a result of police rushing the protest. What I'll say and what, what was translated to the younger population that I am a part of, the younger generation, is that Many seeds grew out of that early mobilization in the Chicano community. One continues and it feeds into our own confusion, which is the sense of false nationalism connected to the nation states and our home communities, our perception of our home communities, of our parents, our grandparents, and what we're consistently fed in international mass media, which we're foreigners, we have no history here, we're all immigrants, but at that time, it really sparked another perspective that, you know, that I continue to care with, which is question the legitimacy of the nation states as we know it, but more importantly, to really highlight and redefine our relationship to land, our ability to fight for liberation. I think it has been spoken consistently about how in the Vietnam War and the success of the Vietnam War really sparked the imagination of us to really consider how that is possible. But it's really, and I think that's the challenge within my own community, rooted in our ability to reassess and redefine our relationship to the, to the land and to our connection to the land that we are a part of and that we might not be the original and indigenous inhabitants of these particular places like Oakland, like LA, like Denver. We are part of the legacy and we are either perpetuators of the invasion and colonization or we are either the seeds that are actually gonna really topple this machine that continues to wreak havoc across the earth. So what was the spirit of Vietnam and how does that spirit live on today? Alex Hing wrote about this in an essay for the book The People Make the Peace. He currently works with the Rainbow Council of Elders. The spirit of Vietnam is stronger than U.S. bombs. I would like us to understand that spirit is not just a word but a breath of energy that deeply connects us to the earth and ultimately to the cosmos through our hearts. It means we are talking about the spirituality generated by the land and the people of Vietnam, which are one, and embraced by peace-loving people all over the world in the war against U.S. imperialism, a culture of death. The spirit of Vietnam burst upon the world during the Tet Offensive in 1968, with the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam attacked over 100 cities, towns, and villages controlled by the U.S. and their puppets, uh, including the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. And people, 
especially people of color around the world, embraced it and believed that U.S. imperialism could not only be defeated, but a world without war, without money, without oppression, and generating the full creative potential of humanity can be built. When this small third world country, through tremendous sacrifice, courage, and spirit, would now allow the most evil methods ever created to destroy them, we empathized with them and opened up another front. The spirit enabled a junior high school dropout who was our member to transform himself and break down Franz Fanon to a group of views on how colonialism and imperialism generates feelings of inferiority among people of color that can become overcome through revolution. The spirit was with us when we broke the stranglehold that the US-backed KMT, the Taiwan-based Nationalist Party, held over our community. Until their power was challenged by the Red Guards, the KMT completely controlled the politics, culture, and economy of Chinatown. The spirit of Vietnam was with people of color and women who were called upon to combat racism and sexism within the anti-war movement so that the war could end as quickly as possible. The Bay Area Asian Coalition Against the War built support for the Vietnamese demands at the Paris Peace Conference and within the Asian American communities. McCall directly confronted whites in the anti-war movement that their slogan, bring our boys home, was sexist and racist because it did not consider what U.S. imperialism was doing to the people of Vietnam. The slogan we chanted was down with U.S. imperialism, ho, ho, ho Chi Minh, Vietnam is going to win. And that none of us considered that treasonous or even courageous, but right. The spirit of Vietnam was embraced by people of color who played a pivotal role in ending the war at great sacrifice, such as the Chicano Moratorium. And to those who say that blacks were concerned only about the civil rights movement, denies the positions taken by most of the leaders of the black liberation struggle, including Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Dr. Martin Luther King, the Black Panther Party, and that one of the first national organizations to openly condemn the U.S. war in Vietnam was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. <laughs> Understanding the spirit of Vietnam recognizes the empathy and support of the Vietnamese for U.S. black liberation, even in the midst of their own struggle. As Nan mentioned, Ho Chi Minh wrote an essay on lynching, a little-known aspect of American civilization, analyzing this racist practice as a means of terror to subjugate black people in America. The U.S. anti-war movement and the black liberation movement received the spirit of Vietnam, which is stronger than U.S. bombs. It is the spirit of revolution that is now being taken up by a new generation. Thank you. Beloved, are you joyful when school bell ringing, students playing, books and notes and lectures piling? You have come back, beloved. The sweetness of coffee surprises you in every taste. Cuộc sống cuồng điên, bóng thiên đường trần thế, 
rầm rập thác người tuôn dậy đàn em trẻ rác bông vàng da tình yêu rộng không ngờ madness of life the gate of heaven on earth masses of people struggling and children and youth don't you feel burning in your yellow skin the boundlessness of love that surprises you in every look that does it for this edition of making contact you can learn more about resistance to the american war in vietnam at our website radioproject.org you can also check out past shows subscribe to our weekly podcast and make a difference by supporting our work If today's show raised questions for you, share it with a friend. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at making underscore contact. Special thanks to Thuy Jang Nguyen and the Vietnam Victory Coalition for organizing this event and for allowing us to air excerpts of it. I originally recorded and broadcast this event for Apex Express. The music you heard was played live at the Teach-In by No Tan Yan. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Redman, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, RJ Lozada, and Sabine Blazant. I'm Marie Cha. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.